The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Hebrews chapter 1. We uh, jump back into our, our series, uh, the book of Hebrews fully intended to finish through chapter 3 this morning, but I'm quite certain that's not going to happen at this point. And you're thinking at this rate, the way this thing is starting, uh, we're going to all graduate something before we ever get through with Hebrews. But this first uh, section is just, is just remarkable, and uh, we want to continue our journey through it. I just want to read to you this morning verses 1 through 3. The writer of Hebrews says this, Long ago and at many times and in many ways... God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son, who He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray together. God, this is your word. These are not my words. These are not the words of any man. But they are your own self-revelation of who you are. And this morning, as you would have it, you would desire to speak to us about your Son, the Lord Jesus. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would make yourself known among us today as we set our minds on you. For we pray it for your glory. Amen. Last week we looked at the very first part of this text and we just really focused on the issue that we have a God who speaks. That we worship a God who speaks. That we worship a God who is real, who is actual, a God who is not silent, a God who has not set the world in motion and just sort of like a top wound it up and just left it to go. He is not a God who has just sort of created us, made us, and then left us on our own to figure things out, to figure out what to believe, to figure out what it is that we're to do, to figure it out uh, how it is that we're to live. He is, in fact, a God who has spoken and continues to speak. A God who, in fact, created all things by His spoken word. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1 last week. And a God who made everything by speaking. And a God who throughout the history of his interactions with men has been a God who speaks. He has spoken, as the writer of Hebrews talks to us this morning about, in in days past through prophets and through miracles and through signs and through wonders and through dreams and through visions and all sorts of ways over all sorts of periods of time. What the writer of Hebrews has told us That in these last days, He has spoken to us in one final way. And that's through His Son. Or by His Son. Or in His Son. That is to say, God has been revealing Himself in ways throughout history. In various ways, over various periods of time. He's been, been giving us bits and pieces of who He is. Bits and pieces of what He's like. Bits and pieces of what it means to know Him and to walk with Him. But in these last days, He's chosen to give us a full and complete and final revelation of Himself. And He's chosen to do that 
in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's final revelation of Himself. Everything we need to know about who God is, everything we need to know about what God has said, everything we need to know about what it means to walk in right relationship with Him is found in understanding who the Son is. You want to know what God is like? Look to Jesus. You want to know what it is God has to say? Listen to Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews is telling us. He's told us that in the past God spoke in a lot of ways. In these last days He has chosen to speak ultimately and with finality in His Son. And God intends to say no more than what He said through His Son. There is no new revelation. There is no new word from God. There is nothing new to come about in what God has to say to us. He has said everything that He intends to say and everything that we need to know in and through Jesus Christ. And the way God has said that through His Son is to put Him on display that we might see Him, that we might hear Him, that we might know Him. So if Jesus is that important, if He is God's final word to men, then it makes an awful lot of sense that we should take some time and give some some pretty serious thought as to who exactly is Jesus Christ. Who is this Son through whom, in whom, the Father has spoken His final word to us. Who is Jesus? If you want to have uh, some enlightening, or perhaps not enlightening, entertainment, just Google, Who is Jesus? And scroll through all the Google results for the question. And you won't even have to get past the first page before you're confronted with the reality that we live in a world that is incredibly confused about who Jesus Christ is. Incredibly confused. We, in fact, live in a culture that is incredibly confused about who Jesus is. We live in a culture that has really sort of been built off of a a Judeo-Christian foundation. And yet, in just a relatively short amount of national time, Jesus, who He really is, has faded from the scene. The identity of the person and the work of Jesus Christ is largely unknown in our culture and in our nation and among the people uh, in your neighborhood and among the people that you would run into in the local grocery store. Most people don't know who Jesus really is. They may know His name. They may say Jesus. They may even say that they believe in Jesus. But if you scratch below the surface and you begin to sort of peel back the layers of the onion and try to sort out what does that person mean when they say Jesus, who exactly is it that they think He is that they believe in or that they speak of? You'd be surprised at some of the notions that would be revealed. The fact that Jesus or the word Christ has sort of become a, a generic term for whatever God one wants to believe in. Just define that whatever way you want to. But I want to suggest to you this morning, Jesus hasn't left himself up for definition. He has, in fact, defined himself. The Word of God has revealed to us exactly who Jesus is, what he is like, who he is, and what it means to stand in relationship with him. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1, the prologue here, defines for us clearly who Jesus is. 
There's no mystery. The only mystery is when we reject what the Bible reveals about who he is and decide we don't like that. And so we would then like to create some other definition that seems more palatable to our own selves. The problem is, even within the church, without a full understanding of who Jesus Christ fully and truly is, believers, church people, are sitting ducks for every cult and false religion who comes around knocking on your door, throwing around the name of Jesus, but defining Him altogether differently. And it happens every day in our city. Every false religion, every false belief system, at least the ones that use the name Jesus or that speak of Jesus, commit really one of two errors. They commit one of two errors, and that is they either reorient the person of Christ, that is, they define him in his essence as someone or something other than what the Bible reveals him to be, or they add to or take away something from the work of Jesus, what he's done for us. And it's a matter of critical importance to us. If you think it's not, listen to what 1 John 2, verse 23 tells us. John writes, No one who denies the Son has the Father. And whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That's John's way of saying that if you get Jesus wrong, you can't claim to be in the right relationship with God. There's no, there's no option on the table to run around saying, oh, I believe in God, I believe in God, I know God, but reject Jesus. Well, the writer of Hebrews doesn't leave us in the dark. He gives us a full and deep and marvelous introduction to the person and work of Jesus in just a couple of sentences. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, why can't you do that too? He gives it to us in a couple sentences. You're going to take us here for the next 25 minutes probably. Because I'm not as bright as the author of Hebrews. That's why. The way I want to attack this passage is to sort of separate it into two categories. The writer of Hebrews is going to describe to us the person of Jesus, that is, who He is in His essence, and He's going to give us some insight into the work of Jesus, that is, what He's done. And so we're going to look at it in those two categories. First, the person of Jesus, who is He, what is He like, and then the work of Jesus, what exactly does the writer of Hebrews want us to know at the outset of this critical letter that Christ has done. And so he begins with the person of Jesus. Now, the first few descriptions he tells us about who Jesus is, he's telling, you remember, an original audience. He wrote a letter to real people in a real place in a real point in history. And these people were much closer in context historically to the actual person of Jesus than we happen to be at our vantage point in the year 2018. They were very well acquainted with the historical Jesus. They knew that he lived. They knew about his life. They knew about his ministry. They knew about his arrest and about his crucifixion. They knew all the facts about the historical Jesus who lived and walked and breathed and spoke and taught and died. But the writer of Hebrews wants to make sure that they understand that the historical Jesus, the man who walked and lived and and, and spoke and talked and did things, is not that what we can observe from that particular vantage point is not all there is 
to who Jesus is. He is much, much more. Indeed, He was truly human. But He was also, the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us, truly God. That while He was truly human, in the sense that He had a body and He had flesh and blood, He spoke, He ate, He did all the things that human beings do, He's much more. He is, in fact, God as well. Full deity in human flesh. He's going to tell us that, that Jesus did not begin when He was born in Bethlehem. Although He was a, a human being who was born to a mother, who was born as a baby, who grew up as any human being did, He didn't begin the day that He was born. He, in fact, has always been. He's going to tell us that the Jesus who walked around did not, like the prophets, just speak about God. He was, in fact, Himself God. When He spoke, He wasn't reporting what God had said. He was God speaking. And this author is going to tell us as well that although he lived a very humble life and very few possessions, he's the one who made everything and the one who is in the will to inherit it all. It's remarkable what he tells us. He begins by saying this. God has spoken to us in these last days by, the, by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. It's the first thing about the person of Jesus we need to think through this morning, that he's the heir of all things. Now you understand what an heir is, right? We understand that. That's a common word. Somebody dies, and when they die, they usually, hopefully, if they've planned things out well in advance, they've written a will, and in that well, will, what have they put? Well, they've, they've listed who's going to get their stuff, Right? Whatever stuff that they own that belongs to them, they're going to write a will, and that will is going to designate who are the heirs to the things that they own. And so someone dies, the funeral takes place, and somewhere at some point, somebody is going to read a will. And whoever is left behind that's related to that individual is going to listen intently to the will, and the will is going to determine and explain and reveal to everybody who the heirs are. Who is it that inherits everything that that person owned? Who is it that's the rightful beneficiary of the deceased estate? And here the writer of Hebrews begins by telling us that Jesus is the heir of all things. He's the heir of all things. Now you may think, well, that's an odd thing to say. Well, it's not an odd thing to say when you're a writer who is deeply entrenched in an Old Testament mind. In a mind that that has just been saturated with Old Testament thought. The writer certainly is reflecting on Psalm 2, verses 7 through 8, which tell us this. The Psalm 2 is a, is a well-known messianic psalm. The psalm is understood by those who studied it, certainly the writer of Hebrews, that this is a psalm that is written from God's perspective, speaking of His royal Son to come, who we know on the New Testament side of things is the Lord Jesus. And He says this, The Lord said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. The writer of Hebrews is saying to a largely Jewish audience, This person that you know is the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a person. He is, in fact, the royal heir of Psalm 2. He is the one who 
who is the Son of Almighty God, who is the heir of all things, the one who will receive all the nations as his heritage, the one who will receive the ends of the earth as his possession. He is, in fact, God. If you flip back to Genesis chapter 17, you'll, you'll see this concept playing out in the, in the early part of the Old Testament. I don't want to trace the whole thing. I just want to sort of show you the thread that weaves its way through the Old Testament. If you remember in Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 4, God speaks to a man named Abram. And it's here that he lays out the Abrahamic covenant. He says to Abram in Genesis 17, verses 4 through 8, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called, uh, shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into, the, into nations, and kings shall come to you and come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. This promise from God established the foundation for the entire nation of Israel from Abram's day to our day. God promised that they would inherit a great possession, a land, and an authority that comes with that. And while Abraham and his descendants were heirs of a land of promise, what the author of Hebrews is telling us here when he says to us that Jesus has been appointed heir of all things, he's saying, you remember Abraham, that God promised him that he would be heir to a great nation and that kings would come to him and that he would be the inheritor of a great possession of an inheritance. Well, Jesus is greater than Abraham because Abraham was going to inherit a land of promise. Jesus inherits all things. Everything belongs to him. And our theme as we work our way through this whole book of Hebrews is just going to be the phrase, Jesus is greater. That is the message of the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater than all who've come before him. And so he establishes here, right at the very beginning, that Jesus is not just a a man, but he is God. He is the royal son of Psalm 2, and he is greater than Abraham because he is the one who will inherit all things. And it's remarkable when you think about his earthly life that Jesus lived a remarkably humble, simple life. He had very few possessions. He, in fact, died with nothing. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus said to one person this, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He owned no home. To our knowledge, he had no personal bank account, no retirement. No accumulated wealth. He had what he needed from day to day. It seems that that's about it. When he died, there was no earthly wealth to leave to anyone because he had nothing. Even the tomb he was buried in was borrowed from someone else. From a strictly human perspective, Jesus Christ had absolutely nothing. And yet the writer of Hebrews tells us, that he is the one who is the heir of all things. That while he lived, he had nothing, but at the end of the day, he owns it all. 
He tells us that Jesus' inheritance is everything. Everything. He is the heir of all things. What's included in all things? Everything is included in all. Is there anything that's not included in all things? There is nothing that is not included in all things. I think that's right. There's a song that we sing sometimes. In fact, I think we sang it last week called The First Place. And there's a a line in that song. It says, Every inch of this universe belongs to you, O Christ. Because it's a reflection of what the author of Hebrews is saying here. Everything belongs to Christ. Every inch, every atom, every molecule of everything that has ever been or will ever be belongs to Christ. It's His inheritance. There's not one thing that exists yesterday, today, or tomorrow that He can't claim mine over. He understood this. Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. Jesus said this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. The significance of that is this. When Jesus walked the earth the first time, He had nothing from a human perspective. But the Bible promises us this, that there's a day coming when the royal son of Psalm 2, the one who is greater than Abraham, will return and He will claim His inheritance for Himself. And He will take His inheritance for Himself. All things will truly, in reality, be His. And He will rule and reign over all. He is the heir of all things. When you read the Gospels and you read about the person of Jesus and you hear Him speak and you see the things that He does, you need to think in terms of those things, but you need to have in your back of your mind that the one who's saying these things and doing these things is eternal God Himself and the one who rules all things and who owns all things and who will return to claim all things for Himself. He's an heir. But he's more than that. He goes on to tell us he is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of the glory of, the glory of God. Again, another sort of beautiful picture that requires some unpacking on our part to make sense of exactly what the writer is telling us. This word radiance, it refers to the, the bright light which radiates the glory of God. We don't want to take the time to track all of that through the Bible, but I'll give you a couple of examples that I think will ring pretty relevant in your mind. In, in Exodus chapter 33, you remember... Moses is speaking with God, and he says to God, show me your glory. He wants to see the glory of God. He wants to see God's glory in full display. And God, if you recall, speaks to, to, Abraham, excuse me, to Moses back in Exodus 33, and he, and, he, and he acquiesces. He says, Moses, I'll show you my glory, but, verse 20 of Exodus 33, you can't see my face. For man shall not see me and live. The Lord said, Behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. While my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until you've passed by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you'll see my back, but my face you will not see. God said, Moses, you want to see my glory. If I showed you my glory in all of its brilliant radiance, you would, you would, it would be devastating to you. You could not survive it. So I'll hide you. And you'll see just sort of the back end of it. Enough for you to be able to see it and live. 
The glory of God radiates in such a way that it would devastate the human eye to see and destroy instantly. In Matthew chapter 17, verse 2, you may remember Jesus took Peter, James, and John and he, he, he took them up on a mountain. And it was on top of that mountain that he was transfigured before them. And it was this remarkable scene in the New Testament where for a moment, Jesus sort of pulls back the veil that was hiding his glory, the glory of the eternal Son of God, God of God's light of light. He pulls back the veil and for a moment gives those men on top of that mountain a a glimpse, maybe kind of like what Moses got, of his glory. And it radiated in brilliant lights. Matthew tells us this, he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. The author of Hebrews talks to us about the radiance of the glory of God. That's what he's talking about. Just like the, the rays of the sun radiate the brilliance of the sun, Jesus radiates the glory of God. He is the visible radiance of the massive glory of God. When you think about the sun, the rays of light are not the sun itself. They're a visible radiation of that sun itself. They are not the heat, but they are yet inseparable from the heat. And it's a good illustration in some ways, although it falls short in other ways, of how Christ relates to the Father. He is the, the, the visible manifestation of the brilliant glory of the Father, and yet in ways He is distinct in His person. To say, though, as the author does here, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God is simply to say that when you look at Jesus, you're seeing a visible manifestation of the glory of God. He is the glory of God made visible, made tolerable to the human eye to see and understand and survive. It's another way of saying He's God. No other person is the radiance of the glory of God. No other thing is the radiance of the glory of God. Only in Jesus do we see a glimpse of the glory of God. But he doesn't stop there. He says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. That word exact imprint is a word that that was used of coins. If you think of how coins are minted in our day, they were similar in days gone by, where there's a, a, a mold that's cut and metal is pressed and there's an image in the mold and that image is pressed upon the metal and when the mold is lifted, the coin is an exact representation of what the, the mold was cut for and set for. It was an exact imprint. The, the, the press comes down on the metal, and what's left is an exact imprint of what was on the press. And so what the author is saying here is that Jesus is an exact imprint of the Father. He's an exact replica. As we've already noted, the Bible tells us that God is invisible, and if He's to be revealed to human eyes, He's revealed in unapproachable light. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16 sort of follows up on that same thought. God who alone has immortality, uh, Paul writes, who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And he means by that fully. 
in His glory. In John chapter 1, verse 18, John writes this, No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, the one who is at the Father's side, He has what? He's revealed Him. He's revealed Him. Christ has made visible the invisible God. Christ has made clear to us who God is. And He hasn't done so in in a, a deficient sort of a way. He has given us an exact imprint of the Father. He is a, a, a perfect stamp of the Father in His essence, in His person. Christ brings clarity to our sort of fuzzy, hazy notions of immortal, invisible, God-only wise. The one uh, among or before whom no man can actually look at and, and live. Christ makes Him known. He is an exact imprint. That's another way of saying in every way, in His essence and in His person, He is God. He is God. There is no distinction in essence between the Son and the Father. Just a quick survey of a few texts in the New Testament to point this out. Colossians 1.19 For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. How much of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ? All of it. Every bit of it. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In Christ, how much of the fullness of the deity of the Father dwells? The whole fullness. He's an exact imprint of the Father. Nothing is lost in translation. Again, Jesus understood this about Himself. In John chapter 14, verse 9, He says this, Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. To see Christ is to see the Father. John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. We're one. We're one and the same. In essence and in person, there's no distinction. All the fullness of deity dwells in Christ. He is an exact imprint of the Father. When we hear the words of Christ, we hear the words of God. When we see the works of Christ, we see the works of God. When we sense the emotions of Christ, we sense the emotions of God. J.B. Phillips said this, Christ was a flawless, moment-by-moment, audio-visual, full-color, three-dimensional demonstration of what God is like. I think that's great. We see that in His life and in His ministry. He wasn't simply a human being. He wasn't merely man. Demons instantly recognized who He was. Instantly recognized who He was. He displayed the power of deity. He transformed water to wine. He could walk on waves in the midst of storms. He could say to uh, a leper, be healed, and he's instantly cleansed. He could say to a, uh, to a layman, pick up your mat and walk. Men can't do that kind of thing. Only God. When we look to Jesus, we see the power of God on display. We should have known... Because when he was born, we're told in Matthew 23, actually before he was born, behold, a virgin shall conceive. You know this? I know it's August. We're not supposed to talk about this till December. She'll bear a son. And they'll call him what? 
Emmanuel, which means God with us. From birth to death, Jesus was God in human flesh in every way. He reveals to us everything we need to know about God because He is indeed God. There is no substitute for Jesus. There is no alternative to Jesus. No one compares to Jesus. He is God in human flesh, and He has come to us. And the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us, not only has God come to us, but He's come to make satisfaction for our sins. He's come to die for us, that we might have life. He's an heir. And he's God in human flesh. But what has he done? What about the works of the Son? Let's just look at the first one. We find it in verse 2. Through whom also he created the world. This Son who is an heir, this Son who is the radiance of the glory of God, the Son who is the exact imprint of the Father, is the one who also created the world. The one who will inherit everything is the one who also did what? Who made it. Who made it. He's the creator of everything. We see this theme all throughout Scripture. I'll just read Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and following. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, say this part with me, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. Everything that was created or that will be created was created through Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. And therefore, it all belongs to Him. The writer of Hebrews will tell us this again in a few verses. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of Your hands. When you see Jesus, when you hear the words of Jesus... When you think about the life and ministry of Jesus, He's not just a man. He's the one who lived and breathed and walked, but He's the one who made everything. Who created all things. And nothing that has been created or will be created is created or has been created apart from His activity. This is not the message of our culture. Our culture is really comfortable with sweet baby Jesus in the manger, right? The culture is really comfortable with sweet baby Jesus because a sweet little baby is non-threatening. I mean, who's afraid of a baby? What kind of baby do they poop on you? That's about it, right? They cry and keep you up at night. The babies are cute. They're sweet. They demand very little diapers and food. So they're really tolerable. The culture is really tolerable of sweet baby Jesus in a manger. But the culture does not tolerate a Jesus who demands, I am the one who made everything. That I am the creator who created you and everything that you know. This is not the message of our culture because our world and our culture has largely rejected the entire idea of God. 
Our culture comes at life and looks at the world around us from a viewpoint that says, all right, there's a world and it's here and we're here and we're experiencing it and we've got to make some sense of it and we've got to figure it out and we've got to provide some sort of explanations for the basic questions of life, like how did I get here, what purpose does my life serve, and where am I going, and is there anything beyond this? But the only criteria these days for coming up with explanations to to answer those questions seems to be you have to start from a vantage point that begins with with the presupposition that there is no God. That's the only criteria that matters today. We don't know how all this stuff got here, but we know how it didn't get here. There's no creator. There's no God. And so what's replaced God in our culture particularly, and largely in our, at least in the developed world, is this concept called science. Science has replaced God as our reliable source for creation information. You can't be taken seriously in the academic world around us. If you waltz into the world of academia and say, I'll explain to you how things are made. Christ makes them. You'll be laughed out of the institution altogether. Because that's a wholly unacceptable answer in our culture. Oh, no, no, no. Christ didn't make the world. The world didn't get here because God made anything. The world got here some way, but it's not that way. We've got some very technical and complicated explanations for how things got here, but that one is absolutely unacceptable. It's just not reasonable. Ian Banks is a novelist and science fiction writer who is a good example of this perspective. He says this, I'm an evangelical atheist. Think through that for a minute. Religions are cultural artifacts. We make God, not the other way around. Religion is one way to explain the universe, but eventually science comes along and explains it. There's sarcasm and cynicism in his quote, but it reflects the genuine thought process of the larger culture around us. Step into the the public sphere and assert, I know where everything came from. Christ made everything. And you'll be made out to be a fool. You'll be intimidated and embarrassed. You'll be made to look like an uneducated, backward, unthinking idiot who believes in fairies and ghosts and goblins and gods. I want to show you in the last couple of minutes that we have left that we don't have any reason to be intimidated by modern academia or anyone who thinks that they have a more reasonable explanation from, for where things came from. Because they do not. How does the scientific world around us explain origins? Well, they explain origins by a very complex theory that has developed over time called the theory of evolution. Now, before you start groaning because you don't want to hear about this or you have some view on this particular matter. Let me define clearly what I'm talking about when I speak in these moments about the theory of evolution. I'm not talking about uh, uh, adaptation. I'm not talking about micro changes that have taken place over time. What I'm talking about is a theory of evolution in regards to an explanation for origins. In other words, as an explanation for where we have come from. And we'll limit it to that for our conversation this morning. The theory of evolution does have an answer for the question of where have we come from. It says all life, at least in the broad concept, has evolved out of a single-celled organism. That the original thing was a single-celled thing. And over time, 
lots of time, that single cell divided and continued dividing, and over millions of years, divided and divided and divided and divided and developed and developed and developed until actual other things came to be. More complex organisms organisms developed over time, over millions and millions of years. There was no creator. There was no intelligent designer. Everything, in fact, was actually random and accidental. That is key to evolutionary theory, that development of organisms is random and it's accidental, that there is no guiding principle or process or being. I want to make a statement that I fully believe is not refutable. Science cannot reasonably say anything conclusive about creation. Science cannot reasonably say anything conclusive about creation. Honest scientists know this. Dr. Asa Gray, one of the great, greatest botanists in the history of American science, said this. She said, a beginning is wholly beyond the canon scope of science, which is concerned with how things go on and has nothing to say as to how they began. T.X. Huxley, who was, by the way, a friend and promoter of Charles Darwin, said this before he died. It appears that a scientific investigator is wholly incompetent to say anything at all about the first origin of the material universe. He knew that. Sir Oliver Lodge, another British scientist, said this. He said, ultimate origins are inscrutable. Let us admit as scientific men that the real origin, even of the simplest thing, we know nothing, not even a pebble. Honest scientists will tell you that science isn't about the business of explaining where things came from. Science is about the business of observing the way things are and explaining why things are the way they are and how they function in the way that they function, but says absolutely nothing about where they've come from. Science at its heart is based on observable things. And unless one was present to observe creation... They're not competent to say anything with authority about how it happened. Science can't create anything. It observes. It organizes data. It repeats processes. It explains how things function. You think, take, take, for instance, uh, gravity. Scientists observe that gravity exists. They can experiment with gravity. Gravity. They can do all sorts of, of, of experimental things with gravity to explain how gravity functions and how it goes about doing what it does. But they can't say anything about where gravity came from, how it got started, what was its beginning. Evolution is a theory about how things have developed not about how things were created. So, whenever a scientist or some snotty-nosed little person who thinks they are one comes at you and starts pontificating about the origin of the universe, you need to understand one thing about that person. When they speak in those terms, they are not speaking as a scientist. They are speaking as a philosopher. It's very important to understand. Because science can say nothing conclusive about origins. Philosophers propose theories about how things began and where they've come from, things that are not observable. 
that are not reproducible. That is well beyond the purview of science. It is the world of philosophy. When a a scientist comes along and starts telling you, here are the facts about where everything came from, and you can take all your Jesus stuff and stick it in your ear. He's not saying to you, this is what I know. He's saying to you, this is what I think. This is my theory. But he can no more prove that than he can prove anything else. The only way that someone could possibly know how the universe began would be if someone was there when it began and told us. Well, I have news for you. Someone was there when it began, and he has told us. The Lord Jesus Christ was there. He's the one who did it. And Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that he is the one who created all things. Don't be intimidated by the foolish worldview around you. It's no more rational than a Christian worldview. It has nothing more conclusive to say about where you've come from or where I've come from or where anything has come from than the Word of God has to say. Those who pontificate on such things, like Richard Dawkins, who loves to run around as famous atheists and debunk Christians and stump Christians, they come up with great theories about where we came from. His most famous one that I think he fully believes is that we were seated here by aliens. Now, you tell me that's more rational than Hebrews chapter 1, that through him he created all things. I mean, I'm I'm, like like the next guy, I'm all for a good alien seating movie, but come on. I'm under no delusion that that's reality. But people with many degrees behind their name apparently are under that delusion and would seek to force such a philosophy on an unsuspecting culture. Believe anything foolish, no matter how outlandish it is, anything other than Christ is the creator of all things. Because if there is a God and He made all things, then we're all accountable to Him. And what man desperately wants more than anything is to be accountable to no one and to live however the heck he wants to live. To do whatever he wants to do, unrestrained, without accountability to anyone. And so he'll devise whatever delusion he has to devise, no matter how outlandish, to explain away the God who is, the God who speaks, and the God who made all things. It's a desperate evasion of the Creator. Astrophysicist Robert Jastrow said this, He said, at this moment, it seems as though science will never be able to raise the curtain on the mystery of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountain of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself up over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. The writer of Hebrews tells us that you want to know where things came from? You want to know where you came from? You want to know where everything came from? Look to Jesus Christ. He made it all. And nothing is made apart from Him. And he finishes up that piece by saying, and he upholds the universe by the word of His power. Not only did He make everything, but everything keeps turning because He keeps it turning. 
And he keeps it turning the same way that he made it, by his word, by speaking, and it happens. If for one millisecond Christ were to stop upholding the universe around us, it would implode instantly. The reason gravity keeps doing what gravity does is because Christ upholds it, and he made it. The reason that the earth continues to turn on its perfect axis is because Christ upholds it that way, just the way he made it. The, the reason that the, that the galaxies operate in the way that they operate and, the, and the, 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 the planets revolve around the sun in exactly the right distance the way that they do is because Christ upholds it that way because He made it that way. And there's one day coming when He's going to return and He's going to undo the whole thing. The one who made it will bring it to a stunning conclusion. We'll think about that later. But the one who made all these things, the one who sustains everything, he comes to your life and he comes to mine and he says to you this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. In order to know him, you must be born again. The one who made you can remake you because he's the one who died to pay the price for your sins. And who comes close to you and says, Listen, you've run from me. You've rebelled against me. But I love you desperately. And I've come to you. And I've shed my blood on your behalf. That you might be saved. Place your faith in me. Believe in me. Trust in what I've done on your account. And trust your life to me and live. I will make you new. And just like I hold the planets in their orbit, I will hold you in my hand. And no one can rip you apart from me. That is the promise of the gospel to all who will believe. And I wonder, will you believe that this morning? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are astounded by you. You are truly remarkable. It boggles our minds to even begin to contemplate who you really are. You are much more than the cute baby in the manger. You are much more than a good example of what it means to do right and not do wrong. You're much more than a great philosopher and a great teacher. You are God in human flesh. You are God who's come to the rebels who run from you. You are the God who died and shed your blood for our sins. You are the one who made us, who owns us, who holds the deed and the will to everything. Who don't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would be drawn to you, Jesus. Cut through the foolishness of the lies they've heard around them. Show them who you are and draw them to yourself. For their good and for your glory, we pray. 